1: The pandemic has upended more than economies. It's scrambled the ways statisticians even measure economies. So they've turned to data on things like people's mobility, card payments, and restaurant bookings. We ask if those numbers add up. And civil rights activist John Lewis was a strident speaker and an intent listener, always getting himself into what he called good trouble in the name of liberty and decency our Washington correspondent, reflects on his exceptional life. First up though. In early April, COVID-19 began to take hold in Canada's care homes, leaving those with loved ones in care in a desperate position. One of them was Dillis Patterson,
2: it was like something from a Stephen King novel, very, very institutionalized, very narrow halls, very dark. No air conditioning, no no air circulation.
1: Her 93-year-old mother was living at the Camilla Care Community, a 236-bed home on the outskirts of Toronto.
2: I got a phone call saying that one person on the fourth floor tested positive. My mom was on the second floor. I was just panicked. Like, I, I've I seldom felt that level of terror in my life. And I, I called, and I said, I want to take her out.
1: Dillis acted just in time. Over the following weeks, nearly a third of the facility's residents died.
2: When I'd put her to bed, we'd watch TV, and we'd watch the news. I said, look, this is what's happening. Look, the deaths. I remember one day, she said to me, so that, that's why I'm here. And I said, yes, and she said, you saved me and i said yes and she looked at me and she said thank you and i'll never forget that
1: although the disaster that unfolded at the camilla care community was at the extreme end of the spectrum it wasn't ultimately an exception across the rich world almost half of all covid deaths have been in care homes even though less than one percent of the population lives in them and the threat isn't going away in florida's nursing homes for example The number of infected residents and staff has more than doubled in the past three weeks. But the systemic problems with elderly care long predate the pandemic. And unless something radical is done, will only get worse.
3: Camilla Care illustrates the the weaknesses, really, of so-called warehousing of older people. It's a horrible phrase, but it's worth thinking about it for a second.
1: Sasha Nauta is The Economist's public policy editor.
3: The idea of a care home, a place where you put people together and then look after them was originally a really good one. But I would argue that COVID has shown that not only in the middle of a pandemic is a care or nursing home not a good place to be, but there are deeper challenges with this model of delivering care, which hopefully now are coming to the surface and are an opportunity for change that is sorely needed in the elderly care sector and particularly in institutional care.
1: And why is that? Where is it that the care sector has gone wrong here?
3: So firstly, a lot went wrong during COVID. Some of the problems were related to the infrastructure, so old buildings with shared ward. I mean, Kamiya Care community has, amongst others, wards with four people on them. That's, that's really not very 2020. But there's also issues with staff. You know, there were staff shortages, staff were moving between different homes and therefore spreading the disease further. And then, of course, there were things that were outside of the control of these institutions often, such as access to protective equipment um, and access to testing around the world. Now, some of those problems are specific to COVID, but many of them are kind of a symptom of a bigger issue, which is that elderly care in general, but particularly these kinds of institutions have been, you know, underfunded, understaffed and underloved for a very long time. So all of this is leading to a conversation around what is the best way, not just in a pandemic, but just in general, what is the best way to care for people as they age and are institutions really the future for that?
1: Well, but what would the alternative look like?
3: Well, the alternative is probably a model that is much lighter on institutions and much heavier on local care. So, care in your home, care in your community. If you go to a place like the Greenhouse in Mississippi, where, by the way, this is a model that's since sort of been spread to a lot of other American states, but that's basically a group of about 10 homes, each with a dozen residents, all with intense care needs, but who live there together with care coming into the home but actually live a remarkably normal life but what this requires is imagination and it also requires a sort of letting go of this idea that we need these huge buildings because it will be cheaper um, because actually it won't be i mean they deliver care within medicaid the american um, care budgets budgeting so it's not necessarily more expensive there will always be a group of people who have such intense care needs that it just makes far more sense, if nothing else, for for cost efficiency to have them in the same place. Um, And what we need is a bit of a paradigm shift to think that as soon as somebody develops either mobility impairments or dementia, that they will therefore need to go to an institution. Instead, if you ask people as they age what they care about most, they will nine out of 10 times say, independence, autonomy. I want to keep control over my own life. And an institution that treats everybody the same is kind of, you know, the last place you want to put people in that stage of life.
1: But that amount of independence at home would require more one-on-one human care, and and that's prohibitively expensive, right? That doesn't scale. Or are we now talking about robots and, and that kind of telemedicine stuff?
3: I should say at the very top, the robots aren't going to fix all this. We will always need humans. But the tech can help in more ways than I think we originally imagined. I've seen a sort of smart home, so a home kitted out with sensors, which was really really interesting, was an elderly gentleman who lived there on his own, whose kids were all terribly worried about him um, and wanted to put him in in a home. But instead, they managed to kit him out with a house with sensors, which essentially meant things like the way he moved around the house, when he got in and out of bed, when he opened the fridge, all those kinds of things were measured and analysed. And basically, if there was a change in pattern, his care provider would be alerted. So, for example always gets up at a certain time, one day doesn't. Eventually, most of us do develop real care needs where we do need some looking after and some help with at least two really normal daily tasks, right? So like getting dressed or bathing. And here too, technology can help and assist an awful lot.
1: I mean, what you're arguing for here is, is nothing less than a global paradigm shift in the way elderly care is provided. I mean, how feasible is that at this moment, given the stresses that governments are under on so many fronts?
3: Well, this is a huge problem, and that is well beyond the COVID context. Most of us will need care as we age. We are living longer lives and our healthy life years aren't keeping up with the speed of our life expectancy. So not only will most of us need care, we'll also need it for longer than before. And the the share of the population in the rich world over 80 years old will have doubled by 2050. The scale of the challenge can't be sort of overestimated. And I think that's can paralyze, but it can also sort of catalyze change. And at the moment, I'm going to put on my slight optimistic hat and say, look, there's such an imperative for change that hopefully the combination with public pressure right now will be enough to at least start it. One thing that gives me hope is that most of the experts who I've spoken to say they've been talking about this stuff for years, if not decades and nobody really had an interest in their work. But then COVID happened and the phone didn't stop ringing.
1: Sasha, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com intelligence offer.
2: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero.
1: If you're able to visit a restaurant these days, you can probably expect face shields, hand sanitizer, and distance tables. But you might not predict that your reservation could be used by analysts and bankers to judge how the economy is doing. From restaurant booking services to mobility statistics, care of Apple and Google, watchers can figure out in real time how and where consumers are spending their money. Well, maybe. It's not clear whether all these data paint a better or more reliable picture than the old tried and trusted measures.
4: So the big macroeconomic data releases that we're used to watching, things like inflation, unemployment, GDP measures, they all come on a lag of weeks or even months. And usually that sort of delay is fine. But in a time when GDP can drop by double-digit percentages in a single month, that delay starts to feel quite long.
1: Duncan Weldon is The Economist's Britain economics correspondent.
4: And also, the pandemic is making the quality of all of those traditional types of data a bit weaker. So furlough schemes and things like that are making labour market data less reliable than normal. Inflation measures are based on a basket of consumer spending, but spending patterns have changed really quickly. So those old baskets are a bit out of date, and inflation measures themselves are probably sending misleading signals.
1: And so what kind of measures are economists using instead?
4: economists, firms, statisticians seem to have discovered this whole new dashboard of previously obscure economic data. So, you know, some of the key ones are things like the mobility data that the big tech companies Apple and Google are putting out, you know, using data collected from smartphones to see how often people are travelling where they're travelling to. We're also seeing a lot of data used from card transactions, but also some even more obscure ones. So restaurant bookings from websites like open table or job vacancies posted on websites like Indeed and Monster. All of these sorts of data have suddenly came to the fore and they've been taken really seriously. It's not just sort of investment bank economists and economic journalists who are writing about them. Central bankers are peppering their speeches with all of these sorts of novel and new data.
1: And all of these new places to look are are filling the gap left by the, the sort of the hard measures that used to be used?
4: I think we've got to be very cautious about how quite how useful and quite how accurate some of this data actually is. And we've got to be really clear about what it shows as well. So take the Google and the Apple mobility data. You know, huge congratulations to the firms that should be thanked for making this data available really quickly. You know, we should be clear what it shows. So that mobility data can tell us that more people have gone back to work, but it can't tell us if those people were previously working from home or out of the labour market. It can't tell us if they're still spending the same amount of money on sandwiches and coffees when they're there. You could also worry a bit about some of their card transactions data. You might think, you know, given you can just take in real time what are people spending on debit and credit cards, that would be a really accurate measure. But we know that many firms are trying to use less physical cash at the moment to try and prevent the spread of infection. So this card spending data might well be being inflated by a switch away from cash.
1: But I mean, what about using some of these novel data sources uh, in in concert, putting them together as as pieces of a new puzzle, but to, to get to the same picture?
4: Oh, completely. I think as long as we are clear about what these different data are showing and we use them together, they can help add to the picture. But there is still a problem that most of these sort of novel measures that have came to the fore are focused on consumers. And that's because of how they're collected. You know, they're either data taken from smartphone usage or they're data you know, compiled by consumer-facing websites. And of course, consumers are a really large and important chunk of the economy. But it tends to be some of the smaller components, which are more volatile, that really drive the business cycle. So, for example, corporate capital spending is a smaller part of GDP, but it tends to move around a lot in recessions. So, you know, that's much harder to measure in real time. Knowing how many people are booking tables in restaurants is helpful, and we can measure that in real time. But unless we can get a real-time read on how corporations are doing for their capital spending, we can't get the full picture of what's happening in the economy.
1: So all of these measures that are garnering all this attention now are just uh, stopgap measures, as it were, you think? Or, or eventually to, to supplement the, the, the tried and trusted ones when, when things get on a more even keel?
4: You know, we are sort of living in this golden age of economic data. There's never been a downturn and a recovery. that has been quantified in quite so many ways. In the medium to long term, I think official statisticians and governments will be looking to improve the quality and timeliness of their own data, maybe by incorporating some of these measures that have you know, risen to prominence in this recession. I mean, these new measures are very timely, they're very fast, and there is a use to that, but they're not as good as the real thing. You know, things like GDP, inflation, unemployment, they've been around for a long time, they've got a long track record. We all understand the methodology of how they're put together. Whereas with some of this newer data, you know, it hasn't really been tested. I mean, it's sort of like, you know instant coffee versus real coffee you make yourself in a cafetiere you can make instant coffee really quickly and it can hit the spot if what you need is some caffeine straight away but it's never going to be as good as that stuff that takes a bit longer to make
1: duncan thank you very much for your time
4: thank you for having me
0: Throughout the 1960s, particularly in the first half of the 1960s, John Lewis was getting into what he called good trouble by protesting racial segregation in the South.
1: John Fassman is The Economist's Washington
0: correspondent. That often led to him being jailed in small towns in the South, and he had a ritual where when he got out of jail, he would go to wherever he was staying, it was usually the home of a local family, he would take a long shower change into fresh clothes and find a little roadhouse spot where he could order a burger and a cold soda. And he would put some music on the jukebox. Curtis Mayfield, Marvin Gaye, Aretha. He described this ritual in his memoir, and it's it's really one of the most moving human moments in it. He said he would let that music wash over me just wash right through me. No. I don't know if I've ever felt anything so sweet. Sigma. Sigma. He was born in Pike County, Alabama. His family had lived there for generations, mostly as as tenant farmers and sharecroppers. Uh, he was raised in a house without running water or electricity. When he was a very young boy, John Lewis, used to preach to his family's chickens. He wanted to be a preacher when he grew up. And he got into activism soon after hearing a sermon on the radio preached by a young man from Atlanta named Martin Luther King Jr. And the sermon essentially challenged American Christians. It asked, how can you believe in the Christian ideals of brotherhood and segregation? He did not see himself as a gifted orator like Martin Luther King. He was a participant. He was an organizer. He was a doer. And at that time, and really for the rest of his life, he led by moral example. He had a very clear and unfailing sense of, of right and wrong. As it happens, he was my congressman when I lived in Atlanta, and I had the good luck to interview him a few times in D.C. He just had a, an extraordinary presence about him. He had this sort of moral seriousness and kindness that really came through. He was one of the first Freedom Riders in the early 60s, and these were men and women, integrated group of men and women, who would take bus trips through the South and intentionally use the restroom of the other race. This was obviously to challenge racial segregation, but it was also to get Southern states to abide by the Supreme Court's ruling that outlawed segregation in interstate travel facilities. These rides met with tremendous violence, People were beaten, were bombed, but he was a freedom rider for a lot of the early 1960s. In
1: 1963,
0: he was the youngest speaker at the March on Washington. He was only 23 years old. That was where Martin Luther King delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech. He was also probably the most strident and passionate. By the forces of our demand, our determination, and our numbers. We shall splinter the segregated South into a thousand pieces and put them together in the image of God and democracy. We must say, wake up, America, wake up, for we cannot stop and we will not and cannot be patient. He was plain spoken, as he always is. And that was really the power of his speech, is that he was very direct about what the marchers wanted and what they expected. On March 7th, 1965, he led marches across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. It was supposed to be a march from Selma to Montgomery. Local police officials stopped the march. They beat him severely. And that same night, while he was in the hospital, he chastised Lyndon Johnson for sending federal troops abroad to Vietnam and Congo, but not to Alabama to enforce the Supreme Court's own ruling. The next morning, Johnson announced that he was, in fact, dispatching troops to Alabama. They arrived soon afterward. And then, four months later, he signed the Voting Rights Act into law.
1: Its object is to open the city of hope to all people of all races, because all Americans just must have the right to vote. And we are going to give them that right.
0: But after Selma, Lewis wrote that the road of nonviolence had essentially run out, and the civil rights movement began to fracture. In the late 60s, John Lewis worked first to register voters and then to win votes. He went into politics himself. In 1981, he won a seat on Atlanta City Council. And then in 1986, he ran for a congressional seat in Atlanta. That's the seat that he held for the rest of his life. And he won that seat by appealing to voters in every constituency. He appealed for blue-collar votes, white-collar votes, Jewish votes, gay votes. And he was an early defender of LGBT rights. In 1996, he gave a stirring speech on the House floor in support of same-sex marriage. We are talking about human beings, people like you, people who want to get married, buy a house, and spend their lives with the one they love. And so his guiding star in Congress was really this deep commitment to equal justice that he never lost. He was the only speaker from the March on Washington in 1963 that lived long enough to see America elect a black president twice. And Barack Obama was a huge admirer of John Lewis.
4: It is a rare honor in this life to follow one of your heroes. And John Lewis is one of my heroes.
0: In fact, after Barack Obama's first inauguration, John Lewis came up to him with a photograph and asked Obama to sign it. And on the back of it, Obama wrote, Because of you, John. His last public appearance was with Muriel Bowser, who was Washington, D.C.'s mayor, and she was the seventh consecutive African-American mayor of that city. And the two of them were photographed together standing on the newly painted Black Lives Matter plaza in front of the White House. And this was painted... In response, of course, to the protests after the killing of, of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officer. And why are we out here? One black lives Their appearance there was both a reminder of how far America had come and how far it still has to go.
1: John Fassman on John Lewis, who died last week, aged 80. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and see you back here on Monday.
2: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero.